Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Wild Idaho Podcast, brought to you by the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the land you love. This podcast is the place to find your community, get inspired to take action for the Idaho you love, and hear stories from real people who are making a difference to our amazing state of Idaho. Welcome to the Wild Idaho Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Hopkins, and I'm really glad you can be here to join us. Welcome again, everyone, to the Wild Idaho Podcast. It is January of 2018, so this is the first episode of our 2018 season. Very exciting, not only because this is our first episode, but 2018 in general is a very exciting year because it is the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. This is a big deal, not only for the nation, but in particular for Idaho. Um, Idaho was one of the states that we had a lot of great rivers that needed protecting and and was kind of at the forefront of the the passing of this act. So before we get into the details, um, I'm going to send this up north to Brad and Emily, two of our staffers out of our Sandpoint office, where they're going to bring us all up to speed on what the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is, some of its history, and some of the Idaho rivers that were pivotal in its foundation. Brad, can you tell us a little about the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act? Yeah, if you've ever um, fished for a steelhead on the Clearwater River or paddled a raft down the Middle Fork of the Salmon River, then you've been a beneficiary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. This landmark law basically protects the nation's free-flowing rivers from dams, diversions, and in-stream mining. Cool. Um, You mentioned the Clearwater and the Middle Fork Salmon River. Are there other rivers in Idaho that are protected under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act? Yeah, other rivers that are protected under the act in Idaho include the Snake River, uh, Rapid River, uh, the St. Joe River, um, the section of the Salmon River through the wilderness. Um, And in 2009, Congress actually added 315 miles of wild and scenic rivers in the Oahis as part of the Oahi Initiative. Wow. So how are additional rivers added to the wild and scenic rivers system? There's basically two ways that additional wild and scenic rivers can be protected. One way, of course, is an act of Congress. Uh, But one that is uh, not often used is that um, state legislatures can actually add rivers to the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. Um, That's never happened in Idaho, and I'm not sure it ever will. Um, But it has been used in states like California. So what are the roles of the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management? What, do, what role do they play in the protection and designation of the wild and scenic rivers? Yeah, so when the Forest Service and the BLM update their land use plans, they go through a process where they evaluate uh, all the rivers on public land and determine whether or not they're uh, eligible for protection under the Act. Okay. So uh, some people argue that the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is obsolete because the era of building large dams in the U.S. is over. Uh, How do you respond to that? What do you think about that? You know, I think in an an era where we're seeing the effects of climate change, all bets are off. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's actually a proposal for a new dam on the Weezer River uh, in southern Idaho and for additional storage at Arrow Rock. So... I um, think that the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is still relevant today. It still protects our free-flowing rivers, and there are potentially some good additions to the system. Mm, That's a really good point. Um, And I understand the origins of the act are rooted right here in Idaho. 
Yeah, back in the 50s and 60s, there were proposals for major dams on the Clearwater River, the Snake River, and the Salmon River. And in large part due to salmon and steelhead anglers, um, many of those large dams uh, were successfully um, fought off. Uh, but it led to uh, Senator Frank Church um, drafting and sponsoring the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And uh, I think in a future episode, we'll go more in depth into that history. Cool. It sounds like there's a lot to explore there. Absolutely. So as Brad alluded to, we're going to be talking about this throughout the year. So you have a ton of other episodes to look forward to where we're going to take some deep dives into the details regarding the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. But I thought for this first episode, I'm sitting here with Marie Keldner, Idaho Conservation League's water associate. Um, Marie has a long history with rivers, so I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to you about rivers, both wild and scenic, um, and all sorts of rivers. And so, Marie, welcome to the Wild Idaho Podcast. Thank you, Austin. Yeah. And thank you for doing the Wild Idaho Podcast. Yeah, it's uh, it's the easiest way to get invited to do cool things. Um <laughs> For those listening, the recorder I use is a little handheld device, and it's pretty easy to get on some trips. So one of the mm. things you may have to look forward to is a live Wild Idaho podcast from a river. Maybe a, a wild and scenic river. That would be... Man, if I could sneak into a wild and scenic river trip, that'd be pretty awesome. Because luckily for us in Idaho, no one lives all that far. If you live in Idaho, you don't actually live all that far from a wild and scenic river mm-hmm. it's a pretty neat thing that would be actually pretty interesting to see like mm-hmm. all the major towns how far they are from a wild and scenic river yeah. huh here we're um i'm sure like as the crow flies the rivers down the Owyhee are the closest but mm. um I didn't think of that. you know we're as the crow flies we're actually not that far from the middle fork salmon hell's canyon yeah a little further from clear the clear water country hmm. living down here in southern idaho but that's awesome. They're all over the place. So, Marie, you your work, I've heard you describe your work, uh, you help rivers be rivers. And a big part of that, a river, one of the, you know, bed and banks and water. I mean, those are like yes. the three key ingredients. Um, <laughs> to creating a river. Yeah. Uh, the bed and the banks. A little bit of a gradient. Yeah. I, guess, I guess we have some, some gravel mining stuff. Bed uh-huh. and the banks, though, we, less worrisome. The water part, though, that... What do you do with water and rivers? I don't know. That's Let's start there. Well, what do I do with water and rivers? Yeah. Oh, like, like what does ICL do, you, do with water and rivers? Yeah, or, yeah. Um, well, I advocate for keeping water and rivers, helping rivers to be rivers, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, we're playing a serious game of catch-up because the way water um, either does or doesn't end up in a river in the western United States on the whole, I'm speaking in some generalities, but this is how we do it in Idaho, is the state basically holds the water that some rivers entrust for the people of the state. They're a public resource, and the state is tasked with managing it. And these are all rivers, not this just This is all wild. rivers, okay. not just wild scenic rivers, all rivers. Um, everything below, speaking of the bed and banks, everything below the ordinary high water mark, which is a term of art that has an actual meaning, but it means pretty much what it says, the ordinary high water mark of a river, all the water that would flow through that river below that mark, at that marker below, is everybody's. It's everybody's water. All the, all the public enjoy the, the right to that water, and the state manages it on behalf of all the people. It's, it's called a public trust resource. 
So, um, and that's been that way since statehood and since statehood in all the other states, um, since the founding of the country, basically. But we place on top of that this management system called the Prior Appropriation Doctrine. And don't be intimidated by the fact that the word doctrine is part of it. That doesn't mean... You're talking to a lowly geologist uh, here. uh, um, (laughs) Or a lowly attorney here. Um, So the Prior Appropriation Doctrine, people... The shorthand for it is first in time is first in right, which means if you were the first one to use some water and you told other people, hey, I'm using this water and I was here first, you have the best right to it. You have the most protected legal right to it, to use it. Um, It's not just who was first, though. You have to be using it for what's called a beneficial use, another term of art there. But a beneficial use means also sort of like what it sounds like. It's a... It's a reason that you say you would like the right to use that water. And so over time, the prior appropriation, prior appropriation doctrine has worked out that, um, you know, here in Idaho, we have an entity called the Idaho Department of Water Resources, and they manage and keep track of and issue water rights to people or entities in order to use water. And so, um, so that's how we, how people or businesses or rivers themselves get rights to keep water in them or to take water out of them. So way the majority of water rights in Idaho and in the Western U.S. and the majority of water rights anywhere are to take water out of the course of a river Mm -hmm. or out of a lake or out of the ground and then put it to use somewhere else. But there are things called minimum stream flows or in-stream flows and that is also sort of what it sounds like so an in-stream flow water right is an actual thing and that means that you get a right from the state the same way you could get a right to take water out of of a river a right is issued that keeps water in a river Mm. and one of the reasons that um, I thought that would be interesting to talk about now is all our wild and scenic rivers have that okay they have in-stream flows so when the wild and scenic rivers in Idaho were designated, they also got a water right. And it's, um, it's what's called a federally reserved water right because wild and scenic rivers are a federal program, not a state program, but the state still manages the water. This is one of those interesting things. You know, we always hear about, or we don't always hear about, I guess if, you're, if you think about these kind of things, you hear about federal pr- supremacy, um, where like federal law is supreme to state law, but it's not always that way. Mm -hmm. And water is one of those instances where um, water management anyway, not necessarily water quality, but water, how we use water, is that way. Uh. The states are the supreme managing entity when it comes to managing water, and the feds have to, like, fit into however that state manages their water. I did not know that. Yeah. So, So, yeah, so there's not, like, the federal government doesn't issue any water rights. Uh, They do it through the states in which... You know, in this instance, in Idaho, we have our wild and scenic rivers, and the federal government holds these water rights to say that there will be water in the stream from X place to Y place, like this reach of river, because it has been designated as wild and scenic for whichever characteristic it was, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever made that stretch so unique and special. And so the federal government, just like any other Idahoan or any Idaho business, goes through the Idaho Department of Water Resources to get a right to secure flow in that stretch of river. Mm. Um, And that, I think, is a wonderful thing about the Wild and Scenic River Act, is that 
it is it is actually a way to protect and keep water in streams. Because if you get a water right that says the water will be in the river from point A to point B or point X to point Y or whatever it was I just said, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's protected. That's That means something. It means that somebody else can't come along later and say, well, you've got this... Uh, You've got a, there's a wild and scenic right here that keeps water in this 80 mile stretch of the river. However, I would like to divert any of that water. You can't just come in and do that. You can't, or somebody could come in and say they'd like to do it. And then the state would say, well, we're not in a position to issue that water right because that water's already spoken for. Hmm. And so the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act does that. It protects rivers in the way that like none of us as folks that work here at ICL or no other Idahoan can do, you know, and the, the state of Idaho can't even do. Hmm. I mean, you have to have that, um, the, in this instance, it's the federal government that comes in and negotiates that. Hmm. So, I, so I think it's interesting too. When I think of wild and scenic rivers, I think of just this inherent beauty, this, this mm-hmm. wildness about, you know, a river truly being a river. And, and for me, just cause my own personal likes, uh, you know, I always think of these kind of like mountainous regions for mm-hmm. not to um, yeah. discredit other places, but that's like my ideal wild and scenic river. Um, but though that value to a river doesn't really play well in the regulatory sense. So with your work that, it, you know, kind of building on this discussion of wild and scenic rivers and people protected them because they realized there's some inherent beauty or there's some inherent value in them. That is there any other realm that you work in as ICL's water associate where you can kind of advocate for something and be effective just based on its inherent beauty? Um, oh, what a neat question! And, um, and full disclosure to our listeners, none of this is planned. I'm just shooting off the cuff, and Marie is kind <laughs> enough to answer my questions. So, oh, I think I would like to say that that's the case, but I guess in um, okay, so speaking off the cuff, this is not a super well thought out answer. Um, but a lot of the places in Idaho, well, first of all, Idaho is fantastically beautiful. And we have all these beautiful um, rivers and streams and lakes all around the state. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them do have, um, th- maybe don't have the federal wild and scenic designation. They don't have that or really that designation, that recognition of their beauty, but they, they do have it in other ways. And even as I just explained that the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is a way to secure water in stream for the purpose of the fact that it's just fantastic and we want to protect its wild, scenic, recreational values. Um, there are other rivers that don't have that protection in Idaho where they've received that same protection Okay. for yeah. the fact that they're they're just fantastic and they're beautiful. And um, in that instance, it is the state of Idaho does agree to hold them. We have this whole system in Idaho where um, you or I, or ICL for that matter, could not go out and seek to hold an in-stream flow right, water right, again, like a, a water right that says water's going to stay in the river through a certain place. We couldn't hold that in our names. ICL couldn't hold it in its name. Um, the city of Boise couldn't hold it in its name or, or any other city for that matter. But the state of Idaho can. Mm. And the way it typically works is um, either people, advocates perhaps like ICL or others, um, or the Department of Fish and Game or another state entity that has that manages values of water, values of rivers, 
would appeal to the state of Idaho to say, hey, this is a really special place. It's really beautiful, or it has a really great fishery, or it's really important that for something upstream or downstream, and or whether it's water quality or just having flow or whatever the reason might be, you could appeal to the state of Idaho to set an in-stream flow and get a water right to protect that. So like that, that is something that can happen. So it's not just wild and scenic rivers that would protect in-stream flows of water. Like other people or entities can advocate to the state that they designate them in other places. And that has happened for decades and they've been established all around the state. Okay. Um, but there's still plenty of places that I personally, as somebody who loves rivers for their inherent value, would, I would say there's a lot left to be done there mm-hmm. as far as like securing in-stream flows and rivers around the state in really beautiful areas. So in that way, that work is limitless in a state like Idaho that has such, that has so much water for mm-hmm. one thing. And, um, and so many places that are really still so remote and don't have people or water uses there yet mm. outside of their inherent value. I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, yeah, it's a good answer. <laughs> uh, it's good talking. Yeah. Whether or not it's an answer. To it anything. sounds like a Southern thing. Is that mm-hmm. like a Southern saying? This um, is good talking. I actually don't think I've ever said that in my life, but oh. it does sound. Yeah. I, Cause that's what we're doing. naturally from me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's what the Wild Idaho <laughs> podcast is all about. Good talking. Glad to be a part. Um, no, so I, so I'm curious though. Kind of pairing, I didn't know that about like how I could I as a person could petition um, yeah. the state of Idaho. But so if I were to do that, would I, would that in-stream flow get a priority date? Yes. Okay. So in-stream flows get priority dates, just like you might say out-of-stream water rights. Um, yeah, well, out-of-stream water rights. They all get priority dates. Now, there's certain things, there's something called subordination, and that just means, I mean, it it means what that word means. It's like something that is subordinate to, uh, like secondary to something else. And so often, in-stream flow rights that have been issued um, say they are subordinate to certain other water rights. Now, all water rights, though, are subordinate to anything that is senior to them, something that's older than them. Okay. And in the same way that in-stream flow water rights... So I guess what I'm saying is, and this probably works better if you can actually like look at a schematic or something, but let's say you've got water flowing from point A to point B, and it gets an in-stream flow water right to secure that water in there, and it got that water right in 1950. So in 1950, somebody for whatever reason, advocated to the state of Idaho, we really want to see the water stay for this several miles, for whatever reason, for the the fishery, the aesthetic value, whatever it might be, and recreational value. And so that water right gets issued from 1950. So any newer water right since 1950 would be subordinate to, would come secondarily to that in-stream flow right. So somebody could come along in 1950, 51 even, or 2001, whatever it might be, and apply for an out-of-stream water right, like a water right where they take water out of the stream, and they could get it. But the deal is, during times of shortage, they might not have their water right met, and you'd still see water flowing through the river Mm. because it was protected there by that in-stream flow right. Now, also, same situation is, a water right prior to 1950, so anything before that, in times of shortage... There, that water right is still going to be met, even if that means that the water doesn't flow in the river from point A to point B. Hmm. 
But um, so they're all like so seniority system. I sort of went from subordination to seniority, but that's probably a more accurate thing to say. Every once in a while, you I mean that is an accurate way to describe it. You also every once in a while see an in-stream flow right that when it gets written up, like when the State Department of Water Resources issues it, they have a subordination clause. I just did air quotes around subordination clause, um, which and it says in fact. This is being designated, however, it'll be subordinate to any consumptive use or out-of-stream use that wants to be issued in the future. Huh. In which case, then it's sort of like, well, then what good did this do? But I don't know. Yeah. Baby steps. Baby steps. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I'm curious, too, kind of on on this this threat to rivers being rivers and, and pivoting a little bit back to wild and scenic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Brad, in the in- intro to this, and commonly, or maybe not commonly, but often you'll hear opponents of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, uh, or people who may not totally agree with it, mm-hmm. will say, you know, that act passed in an age where we were damming rivers, or you don't see dam proposals that much anymore, and so, like, the threat to rivers maybe isn't as, uh, it's decreased since the passage of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And And Brad brought up an interesting point, too, in the fact that you know, we still need to protect these rivers, maybe not in the face of dams, but maybe in the face of climate change. Um, and, you know, I, I know you, being Idaho ICL's water associate, you've, you've worked on some dam proposals. And amongst a lot of us, we've all worked on kind of the, the threat to Idaho in light of climate change. So just what are your thoughts on, you know, Wild and Scenic Rivers Act and Wild and Scenic Rivers going into the future, the threats they face? And what can be done to to keep them wild and scenic? Well, I would say, like, especially in that vein of climate change, um, well, one thing is it's it's less than a, I think it's right around a third of 1% of the rivers in the United States are protected under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. It's a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of rivers. And so I, I am somebody who subscribes to the theory that, like, it's not been overused and there's no real threat of it being used to the point of preventing any future development on rivers or anything like that. I mean, it's mm. such a tiny percentage of rivers that have been protected. Of course, here and here in Idaho, it's still less than a thousand miles. Mm. And we have over a hundred thousand miles of rivers and less than a thousand are protected under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. Um, so, there, so there's that. So I put that out there. But um, thinking about it as, you know, a protection tool in the face of climate change or how climate change could impact its existence, I would say that, I would say, yes, it's potential, potentially a protective force in the face of climate change. I don't know that I see it playing a bigger role in the face of climate change, frankly. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I would have to say, and I don't think that this is at all a reason that this was included in a Wild and Scenic River designation in Idaho, but I think it is, it's, I'm happy that it is there and it will be a protection in the face of climate change into the future. And it is, we have um, a stretch of the, the main Salmon River, a long stretch, that is designated as wild and scenic, 80-some-odd miles, that is a wild and scenic river protected stretch. When that was established, there was a negotiation between the state of Idaho, I believe different tribes in Idaho, um, the Department of Interior, maybe representing the tribes, representing the Forest Service and other entities as well, as well as different communities along the Salmon River Corridor. And 
there was a concern at the time, and that stretch of river was designated in 1980. There's a concern that if you designate this river, and you know, earlier we were talking about how like an in-stream flow is a component of a designation for Wild and Scenic River. If you designate this stretch, it means there can't be any more development mm. because you're saying this stretch river gets X amount of water um, and then anything that would come after it would be um, you know, junior to it or subordinate to it. And so part of that deal was, um, and I don't know who proposed it, I was no part of any of this, this was well before me, but part of the deal was an agreement that moving forward, I believe it's like right at 150 or 160 cubic feet per second left of water could be allocated above the community of salmon on the Salmon River. So that's all that could be allocated in the future, like since 1980. That's all that, let's see how to say this, that's the only new allocation that can be made for like a consumptive use of water. Okay. And so like, you know, you can have a non-consumptive use of water that's us like taking a shower, flushing a toilet, um, hydropower, those don't use up the water. It stays mm-hmm. in the system. It just gets diverted and used for something and then put back. That's non-consumptive. But consumptive is where it comes out of a river or the ground and gets utilized by something and it doesn't go back to its primary source, like mm. it doesn't come back to its doesn't go back to its source. So part of that wild and scenic designation on the salmon was only again, I'm pretty sure it's 150 CFS, it might be 160 CFS um, cubic feet per second of water, of consumptive use of water could ever be allocated and hmm. moving forward. And I have already, representing ICL, been a part of a few different conversations where people are applying for new uses of water in the upper salmon basin. And there's this discussion of like, okay, somebody wants to get, let's say, 2.7 cubic feet per second of water for their farm or their ranch. Um, and then there's a, a like a large group conversation saying, okay, is this, a, is this proposed use worth it? Is it worth being 2.7 of that 150 total that's out there? Um, And so I I mentioned all that to say I I find that interesting, and that's how it was negotiated and how it it came into being in Idaho. But that's a protection in my mind against um, climate change. Now, in in the 80s when that was being negotiated, or the 70s, was that on anyone's mind? I have no idea. But it is, in fact, going to be a protection against climate change because those, th- there is a protection on a significant volume of water flowing through the river all throughout the year. Hmm. And new uses can't come in on top of it to like, to like a limitless extent. Mm-hmm. And I think that that'll provide protection when we have these really off years, which we're going to have. Hmm. It's going to keep some water in the stream that otherwise would be coming out. In the, I, I don't remember, but is that just on the main salmon or is that all, is that safety buffer built into all um it's a it's a case-by-case basis okay and and i don't know for sure because i believe we have eight wild and scenic segments in idaho Mm -hmm. and i'm actually not sure if it's a part of all of them or not Mm -hmm. i don't believe that it is Hmm. um interesting but that's a that's a great question we can figure that out yeah i can figure that out episodes to come yeah we're we're gonna do a bunch of episodes so we just gotta write these down Mm -hmm. um you know, getting close to our time here, but I, I wanted to kind of close with, with a kind of a fun question. Prior to coming to ICL, you were a river guide, mm-hmm. which is, I've never mm-hmm. been a river guide, but mm-hmm. I've been on multiple river, river trips, and mm-hmm. it's one of those dream jobs, it seems like. 
among ICL being a dream job. Yeah. But given the amount of time you've spent on rivers, do you? Th- how does that affect how you see rivers? Um, like, do you think when you are in a boat going down a river, there's something that stirs inside you maybe different? Like, has it lost anything? Does it gain anything? I don't know. Just... I... Okay, so I became... I went to work for a river company my senior year in high school. And I then did it for almost 20 years. I think I actually have like 18 commercial seasons under me, I think is what it is, for three different outfitters around the country. And um, the last place I worked was up in southeastern Alaska, and it was working there that really inspired me to go back to school to do more to protect rivers because I got to work on some rivers that were just sort of that classic dichotomy of we're going to have a lot of development a lot and a lot of um, impacts on a river that would very likely degrade the natural habitat of it's like the first mm-hmm. place I rode boats up north was at, in Alaska was in a bald eagle preserve that has the largest gathering of bald eagles anywhere on earth every fall. Um, or it happens every fall and it's the largest gathering anywhere on earth ever. Hmm. Like thousands. And, um, and that was again, one of those places where like that almost was destroyed or could have been destroyed, um, by massive development and resource extraction. Um, it's one of those cases of like some places are just too precious to mine or to log or whatever it might be or to overfish whatever mm-hmm. the, the issue might be as far as extraction is concerned and then I got to do some other trips that were even way further out in the wilderness in an area that got protected as a UNESCO World Heritage Site so United wow. Nations like biggest protection we have on earth to protect something recognizing its its value for whatever its value might be and in this case it was like just fantastic natural ecological wild values so that inspired me to go back to school. Now, yes, I have always been stirred by being on a river. It's one of those un, untangible things. It's part of who I am. I was born this way. <clears throat> one of my first river trips when I was 10, loved it, became a river guide when I was 18. You know, just like loved it, always have, always will. I would say, now that I know so much about... Um, so much about how water is allocated and managed and protected. There's a little bit of a, you know, um, sometimes sometimes you wish you didn't know as much as you did. Yeah. It certainly impacts my experience out on the river because I can't not see certain things. At the same time, that's okay. You know, that's okay. That's And now that's my job is to like, I mean, I'm out on the river I'll never, I can't fathom that I'll ever like be out on the river, wherever the river may be, and not see some of the things I now know to look for as far as abuses to rivers mm. or just questions that I ask about like, oh, you know, I wonder why that's set up over there, huh? I wonder what that pipe is doing. Mm. Things like that yeah. that I used to probably not notice, or I, I don't think I noticed. Mm. Um, but again, that's okay. And a cool thing about working here is that part of my job can be to look into those things if I see them in Idaho yeah. or to alert others to them as well. So there's that. But I, I think that, um, you know, I got asked this actually like right before I went back to law school by like a, a film crew that was on one of our trips at, up north. And, um, you know, we were out in the middle of this really, really, really wild place, hundreds of miles from people. 
surrounded by wildness, animals, glaciers, the whole deal. And and even then, and I've had so I've had like fifteen years to contemplate it since. And I still like can't really say what it is that makes it worth protecting or important to protect, but I just believe it with my core. I I couldn't tell you I couldn't say it in a tangible way. It's mm. just it's just there. Yeah, I I could see it. Um yeah. yeah, there's just something about being on a boat floating down a river. Uh especially if you're away from it all. You know, there's mm-hmm. there um yeah. I I love the the first the start of the Kabartan run um mm-hmm. kind of down here in central southern Idaho and you're just you're on the river, you're surrounded by woods and it's like it's a day run you can drive mm-hmm. from Boise and do it in a day you probably mm-hmm. do it multiple times a day to be honest yeah. but it's like the second you're on that river it's you're in a different reality yeah um and yeah so it's great it's hard to place the finger on that but it, it's right. special I think it's important for us to, to as humans to have that opportunity to like to decompress and get up and just mm-hmm. be part of what we're really a part of in the grander scheme that's the thing too like the river's in charge it's always in charge yeah they, they remind you of that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good reminder. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's rapids or not. Like, it's it's in charge. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to be, remember that. Um, well, with that, thank you so much for taking time thank to talk you, to me. Thank you, Austin. You will probably be featured on, on more episodes. So that's that's well, a teaser you. for our listeners. This is exciting. Um, wanted to conclude first by thanking everyone who's listening. Uh, all of our members, you guys are awesome. You make this podcast possible. If you're not a member, as always, check us out, idahoconservation.org. You can learn more about the work we're doing to protect rivers, protect air quality, protect land. Uh, develop sustainable communities, uh, clean energy, all that jazz. Uh, if it affects the environment, especially in Idaho, we're on it and we couldn't do it without your help. So thank you guys so much. The second thing I'm going to conclude with an ask, being that this is the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, there is no time like the present for you to grab a friend who's never been on a river and take them on a river trip. Oh, great idea. Turn them into an advocate. Um, make them fall in love with the rivers. Don't make them. They will likely <laughs> fall in love with rivers yeah, all on their own. Much. Yeah, but uh, if, if you have the means, we encourage you to, to take a friend. So That's a great idea. With that, we'll sign off. Um, thanks, everyone, again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.